Well, if you'd like to sit, I think Stuart's going to read for us. The first lesson is taken from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 4, beginning at verse 32. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him, then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. The second lesson is taken from Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Now during those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait at tables. Therefore, friends, select among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. What they said pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen, Timon, Parnanus, Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to spread the number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Would you join me in a prayer as I begin? Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word today and guide us to become the kind of church that will please you, that will make you smile when you look at us and the work we seek to do in your name, in and for the people of this beautiful parish and island 
where you have placed us. Amen. Although it's now 31 years ago, I clearly remember when, as a new Christian, I was first brought to this church by Richard Renoff after coming to faith a few days before at Mission Jersey. I sat with Richard and Wendy, who looked after me very well and showed me the ropes and carefully nurtured me in my first few weeks here. And I still recall my sense of joy and relief as I settled into this lovely spiritual community, believing, truly believing, that I'd finally found an organisation that would be free of internal politics, envy, selfishness, and all the other unsavoury aspects of the world, and particularly the business world where I did daily battle. And I can already see some of you smiling at my naivety, perhaps murmuring to yourselves in a tone similar to that of Mrs. Faulty as she explained away the foibles of her head waiter, Manuel's from Barcelona. Poor fool, he's a young Christian, he'll get over it. But remember, I was a new and starry-eyed Christian and at that time, St. Juan was enjoying a season of flourishing. In the intervening years, I think it's accurate to say that we've had some challenges. So my initial idealism was soon dispelled as I saw that for some unaccountable reason, we had succumbed to the enemy. Why and how did we do that? I think one of the chinks in what should have been our impregnable armour was the lack of compassion and justice. And I don't mean generally because the congregation was and remains godly, but rather on a case-by-case basis and particularly towards the leader. They say everyone has an average of 2.6 blind spots. So I think that's what it must have been. But it was not easy to deal with. Our church has halved in size, but survived. And please God, we may now be on the threshold of a renewed period of growth and flourishing. But to achieve that we must be on our guard against giving the enemy a foothold. The Greek word for which is topos. It's a military term denoting a strategic position or strong point. And in a church context, it's the congregation that gives it to him. He doesn't take it for the simple reason he does not have the power Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. So the only way the devil can gain a foothold is if we let him in by our own behaviour. 
like a Trojan horse. Continuing with the military imagery, 1 Chronicles 12 describes those who supported David. Firstly, he needed perceptive leaders, verse 32, men that had an understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Secondly, in order to succeed, David needed people who could follow. Verse 33, men who could keep rank and were not of double heart. A New Testament example would be the centurion whose servant Jesus healed in Luke 7, 8. He was a soldier, a man who could keep rank and a man of faith who understood the value of obedience and indeed the life or death necessity of those under his command to hold the line when required. And I think we need to appreciate the critical importance of being able and willing and humble enough to hold the line, to keep rank, and as Christians to keep faith, because for us it is a matter of life and death. Eternal life is at stake here. And what a contrast to the spirit of this age in which I have considerable sympathy with leaders of Western democracies in particular today who are expected to perform without error of any kind, deed or word, past or present, in an atmosphere in which mercy for them and those in authority has already dried up where people enjoy criticising after the event while granting themselves the benefit of hindsight and where they seem, because of the faults they've discovered in their leaders, loath to bestow loyalty other than to their favourite football teams. And this spirit, unfortunately, permeates the whole of society to include leaders of all organisations. And if it's true that people get the governments and leaders they deserve, and if the quality of leadership is, as the media indicates, less than satisfactory and thus not trusted, perhaps the problem lies not so much with the leaders, but within the people themselves. So the challenge is to seek people worthy of better leaders, people who can keep rank and who behave in such a way as to merit better leadership. And there is, I believe, only one way effectively to achieve that through the good news of Christ and the work of his Holy Spirit, the only person who can change people from within. And as with any Change. It starts with each of us as individuals examining our own hearts and motives before we can ever hope to influence others. 
So to see how this can come about, it may be helpful to go back to basics and our two short readings record the example of the early church. Describing the mother congregation of Jerusalem, Acts 4.32 tells us that within the multitude of those that believed, there was one heart and soul. Now they were a diverse community, estimated at that time to have been well over 10,000 and growing daily. They comprised young and old, rich and poor, various nationalities, trades and professions, but they had one thing in common, their faith in Jesus Christ. And literally it's expressed beautifully, they had heart and soul one. As in a living body, one heart beats. It is cardia in Greek and was the centre of the personality, the thought and the feeling. And it's interesting that that ancient belief has been shown to be true from studies um, of heart transplant recipients who've developed character traits of the person whose heart they've received. One heart. The first Christian community was also of one soul, psyche in the Greek, which animated the body and gave it life. So the Jerusalem church served as a model for churches to follow. They were wonderfully diverse, something incidentally that really impressed me when I joined St. Juan, which had a wide variety of folk. And yet together, this early church formed one body with a single heart and soul. They all wanted one thing, you see, to attain to the eternal life that was effectively already theirs in Christ. They had one main focus, to be faithful to their Lord and Saviour, Jesus. And they all shared a common experience, the Holy Spirit at work in their lives. And the result was that despite their large number, no divisions existed. No secret agendas lurked in the shadows. In short, they gave the enemy no foothold. Sounds like the church I joined, (laughs) or blissfully thought I had as a new convert all those years ago. How can we regain that? Well, the early church lived out unity. They embodied it. And yet, these thousands of believers would surely have had a variety of perhaps strongly held opinions on matters. But unlike us today, they must have considered others' views in a spirit of generosity and mercy. They would bear with each other. 
they would have given the benefit of the doubt. As we've just sung, they would try to understand others rather than to be understood. Well, you've got to do, you understand the way I feel about this. Well, yes, but can I understand how you feel about things? They held each other in high regard and gave particular respect to their leaders, the apostles. And in verse 32, we see that not one of these many folk claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. (laughs) Wow, that, as they say in Australia, is a screamer. It's revolutionary in our world of rich lists and material ambition. This first congregation was of one heart and soul, not only in general, but as far as possessions were concerned as well. When I was training as a lay reader, I remember Michael Halliwell, the the rector of St. Bernard at the time, one of our teachers, telling me that he had found that the wallet is often the last part of a person to be converted. Now, by way of context, these first Christians came in large part from the Jewish community, both in the Holy Land and further afield. And the law of Moses made provision for the poor. Yet the fact that beggars regularly feature in the New Testament shows that the law was not being followed. The Holy Spirit clearly worked in the hearts and minds of these early Christians to change their attitude to wealth, prompting them to look after those within their ranks who found themselves in need. Christian charity thus began at home and must have had a tremendous impact. Imagine it. In a city where the number of beggars had to its shame been allowed to grow, this Christian community had none. And verse 34 tells us how this first example of Christian generosity worked. And the first thing to note is that it was not communism. The rich didn't sell everything they had and become poor. They simply met needs as they arose and they did so voluntarily in response to the love that they knew they had received in Christ and were receiving daily from their fellow believers. Clearly, the amounts were significant as owners of fields and houses, we are told, sold their assets to meet those needs as they arose. And they laid the sale proceeds at the apostles' feet. And the image there is of the apostles sitting on a raised stage and managing the distribution to the poor. And verse 
36 provides a specific illustration of a disciple, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas and whom we hear about later on in Acts. He owned a field uh, which he sold and brought the money and laid it at the feet of the apostles. So this unity of heart and mind worked out in practical ways, impacted the local community, and importantly, critically, I would say, must have underpinned the Apostles' testimony to the resurrection of Jesus mentioned in verse 33. Do you see how the community can support the apostles' preaching. They were the ones who preached the gospel, but the community walked the talk as well. There was no conflict. They resonated. People outside the church, the community, uh, would have said, oh yeah, these uh, apostles are preaching love. And oh, by the way, we see that love being worked out daily within that community. So we give it credence. And as we move on to our second reading in Acts chapter 6, we are told that all that worked because the number of disciples continued to multiply. It didn't just grow, it multiplied. That's God's economy. It's not a few percent, it's he multiplies. That's what he does. However, interestingly, in verse 1, growth brought its challenges. A murmuring arose, a wonderfully onomatopoeic word in the Greek, ganguzmos, ganguzmos. You can just imagine it, can't you? A grumbling, a voicing of discontent, trouble on shop floor among the Greek speakers against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. So even in those early days, it's interesting and perhaps in a way comforting to us in our less than perfect church to see that an issue arose. However, and this is where the justice element in our theme is demonstrated, the apostles didn't sort of bring round the wagons and try and defend themselves as people might do today and say, well, you're wrong. No, they must have checked that there was indeed a problem, possibly caused by confusion of language. These were Hellenists, Greek-speaking Jews who'd come to Jerusalem and the Hebrews. Maybe it wasn't intentional, we're not sure. But the apostles saw the problem, agreed that there was a problem, and immediately dealt with it. They called together the believers, explained that it would not be right for them to neglect their ministry of the word to serve at tables, and asked them to choose from among the brethren seven men to undertake the task. Now, although the apostles were in charge, 
They treated their fellow believers as brothers and sisters, and after stipulating that the new officers should be wise, full of the Holy Spirit, and of good repute, they trusted them to appoint the right candidates. Everyone accepted this as a good solution, and the seven, having been chosen, were presented to the apostles for final approval and commissioning. Now, some estimates put the size of the congregation at this time to around 20,000. And as we saw in chapter 4, significant sums of money were being received and used to purchase food to distribute to those in need. So the task was taken seriously, and the seven came before the apostles who laid hands upon them in Old Testament tradition to bestow the blessing they would need for their new office, which we could describe as deacons because they were in charge of the diaconia, the distribution. Note that among these new deacons were introduced to Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, who will shortly become the first Christian martyr. We're also told of Nicholas, a convert to Judaism, a proselyte from Antioch, which was the place where the term Christian would first be used of the disciples and which would develop into an important Christian centre. The apostles thus handed over this important responsibility to these new deacons and freed themselves for their divine ministry, which they recognised in verse 4 as worship, prayer and preaching the gospel. So this was an interesting example of how the early church handled issues quickly and openly so they don't fester consultation with those affected and subject to oversight but not micromanagement by the leadership. Everyone playing a role, attending to the tasks for which the Lord had anointed them and not being stressed by taking on anything that could be a distraction. So the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of Jesus. And the Greek word for testimony is martyrion, from which we derive the word martyr, because subsequently so many of these disciples, these witnesses, were put to death for their faith. And I often think we should pay more homage to the cloud of Christian witnesses gone before us and honour the way they lived and what they held dear and try to emulate it because they gave their lives to keep the flame of faith burning brightly and to pass it on. Similarly, the war 
veterans of our times. You know, we say we owe them a debt, but continue to live in our own selfish way. And what about succession? Some of us are nearer than others to our moment of departure. What do we want our legacy to be? Are we going to leave behind a beautiful shell of a building unchanged for hundreds of years, but with a dwindling congregation? Because that's a distinct possibility. What really matters at the end of the day? That we preserved all the pews or that we enjoyed being part of a healthy, lively and growing and loving church community of the kind the Holy Spirit created in Jerusalem. That we kept that flame alive, that we were part of it, that we passed on the baton and didn't drop it on the track. The choice is ours. As a result of their unity and compassion based on just treatment of each other, in verse 7 we're told that the word of God continued to grow, and it's interesting, it's the word of God that continued to grow, emphasizing that God's word is alive, it's a living thing. But remember, the only way God's word can live is through us. <laughs> and it's either alive or it's dead. And if it continues, to live and grow, then as we see, the number of disciples multiply. So obviously the issue with the distribution of the food didn't hamper the growth of the church. And in addition, we are told that a large number of priests became obedient to the faith which was a real breakthrough and a sign that the old order of that time was crumbling. Perhaps we're in a parallel season today where a reawakening is upon us, our old order needing a new lease of life. The COVID pandemic has certainly jolted folk out of any previous complacency and please God we'll be ready to get them thinking about a new way of living by introducing them to Jesus but we'll only do that successfully if we show that we the congregation are of one heart and mind and prove it show it in the way we treat each other Amen